Hello everyone and welcome to Side Dish. This is an IFT podcast that dishes up perspectives from multiple disciplines relating to the science of food and developing your career in a rapidly changing professional ecosystem. I'm your host, Bruce Perkin. You know, it's been roughly 30 years since genetically modified crops were first introduced into commercial production for consumption. And today, there is still only a relatively small number that have been developed and approved and now in common usage. In the US, the regulatory authorities deemed that the GMO crops were inherently no different in terms of human consumption and therefore took the view that foods derived from these modified crops did not need labeling. And today, more than 90% of all soybeans, corn, canola, and sugar beets grown in the US are genetically modified. As with most things, the technology has continued to evolve and much cheaper and easier and even more specific ways of improving plant genomes have been developed. Today, we're gonna be talking about a relatively new type of gene editing technology. One that's really only been with us since around about 2012, and one that has even more potential to make a positive impact on the future of food. And that technology is called CRISPR. For those of you who need to know what the acronym stands for, it is Clustered, Regularly, Interspaced, Short, Palindromic Repeats. Yep, that's not so illuminating. However, our guest today is going to help us with that. Our guest is Dr. Haven Baker, who's the co-founder and chief business officer of Pearwise, a company that's developing fruits and vegetables that have been improved with gene editing, with a key focus on consumer-orientated improvements. However, not GMO. Prior to starting Pearwise, Dr. Baker was the senior vice president and general manager of Simplot Plant Sciences, where he led the development of the innate potato a potato that produces less acrylamide when fried and really the first biotech food crop in the US with both consumer and farmer benefits. Haven, welcome to Side Dish. Glad to be here. Thank you. Thrilled to have you today and I'm really looking forward to our conversation. So let's kick off with asking you to tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be in the gene editing field. Well, I I mean, I've got a almost equal parts background of sort of finance and business, agriculture, and actually life sciences. And it's a good story now, but what, you know, while I was building that story over the last 20 years, it sure felt circuitous, but, you know, briefly I grew up in a, in a multi-generation farming family. So I grew up in agriculture around, and we did a lot of specialty crops, onions and potatoes and peas and as, and sweet corn and popcorn. So grew up in that. And then, um, you know, Farming was tough, and so I viewed it, education as the way to get as far away from farming as possible. <laughs> so, um, so I, you know, I, I, I did well in the sciences, and, um, you know, after I got my first degree in uh, biomedical engineering, I went out to Silicon Valley, and I, I got a chance to join a biotech startup. And so I got the world of startups, and, you know, I got some key advice uh, real early in my career. One was the, the 21st century was going to be the century of biology, and the second was that some of the most interesting careers were going to be at this intersection of business and science. And so, you know, of all the advice I got, that's some of the stuff I listened to. And so I actually went and I got a PhD in chemistry. I started a mm. company with my advisor and then I went and got an MBA at Harvard. And, um, and so I was, and then I had a year to hedge fund. Um, and, the, and so I was in my early thirties trying to decide what to do. And, um, 
you know, I, 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 I guess my views on agriculture and food had relaxed a little bit. And I thought it would, this would be a great area to, to innovate in. And one of the exciting things about, um, about agriculture and food is that the product development life cycles are so much shorter than, say, drugs or any of these other, um, you know, more complicated uh, life sciences technologies. And so, um, so the, the, the short story here is my father-in-law is a food scientist, actually. And um, he came out and visited us in Boston, and he told me about that Simplot was interested in innovation. And so I, I reached out to them, and I joined Simplot. I had eight years there, and I worked on potatoes. Um, eventually, they, they put me in charge of their, their business, commercializing biotech products and genetics. And um, it was great. I had a great relationship with them. And um, But I was, as, as, as CRISPR technology started to come around, and I think we'll get into that, I thought there was a, an opportunity to do more. And so I, in 2017, I started Parrot Left and started Pairwise with my co-founders are Tom Adams. He's a, he, he came from Monsanto. And then the, the other three are actually professors at, at Harvard, MIT, and, and Harvard Medical School. And they're some of the inventors of CRISPR technology. So together, we, we put together Pairwise with this focus on fruits and vegetables and, and bringing, um, bringing new products to market. Wow, what, a, what an amazing backstory and to um, have such uh, detailed experience in the world of finance and startups and, um, and uh, what have you. It's, uh, that, that's not normal for a, uh, for a biochemist uh, come a geneticist, is it? No, I mean, I mean, this is, and we, at Pairwise, we look for people with multiple backgrounds, but again, it's where right. you can find these intersection of multiple fields can be, sometimes can be really interesting. You know, that's a really deep insight that, you know, you, the multiple disciplines are, are the things that we're really looking for in order to drive the true innovation space going forward, in, particularly in food. And we're going to need a lot of innovation in food going forward, that's for sure. So you've referenced CRISPR a couple of times already in, in your introduction. And, and, of course, that opens up the, uh, the question. I, I believe that most food scientists will have heard of the, the term CRISPR. And although probably like myself, um, would struggle to explain it to friends and family. So uh, can you give us a quick overview on, on how CRISPR works and what key advantages it has over other methods for uh, gene editing? Sure, um, Bruce, I think that this is, you know, part of, the, part of the issue with sometimes explaining technology is the technology is one thing and the applications are another. So it's kind sure. of it's great when we can mix them. So I'll, I'll try to do a real simple job, and we'll start with with uh, with the humans, and then we can move maybe to plants. But there are a lot of the things that make us up, whether it's plants or humans, are, are multigenic. So there's lots and lots of genetic contributors, but occasionally there are things that are a single gene. And so, like whether your earlobes are connected to your to your face, or what the widow's peak, or even a double jointed thumb, all of those traits are are single genes. And so those are those are positive attributes. Maybe that maybe they can be more appealing to some people, but relative to human disease, there's lots and lots of genetic mutations that give rise to some forty percent of human disease. And usually these are um, mutations in one of our genes that create some sort of handicap, whether it's anemia or uh, or much more serious diseases in in, in, in liver or kidney. It can be it can be lots of things. And so the because these are genetic mutations, there's really usually most of the time there's almost no medicine for them. Um, you'd ha- you have to change the underlying DNA to, f- to, f- to fix that mutation, and therefore to, to to give the gene full function, and therefore not have the disease. So that's that's where we've been the last hundred years developing medicine. And what think about CRISPR 
as sort of a GPS for DNA. So if there's three billion base pairs, you need to know which gene, to, you need to have some sort of homing device to figure out which gene to fix. And CRISPR is that machinery that can find one or two base pairs in three billion. So kind of like a GPS. And so then what, what the biochemists do is they attach, you know, sort of machinery, molecular machinery to, to, to the CRISPR. And so you can cut DNA, you can repair it, you can replace one base pair for another, and that's base editing. And so that that hopefully that explains what, what CRISPR is now. So that's on the human side fixing the disease. Now, what we plants are a little different in the sense that most of what we've commercialized is a relatively narrow subset of all the natural diversity. And so what a breeder's job is to continually, plant breeder's job is to continually move the genetics forward. And he's bringing in outside germ germplasm, outside traits, outside this narrow window. But it can take 10, 20, 30, 50 years to incorporate these new mm -hmm. traits. And so what CRISPR can do is bring up, now these are also genetic variations, but bring these natural genetic variations right into your commercial, your commercial plants, or your commercial germplasm, and, um, and, and, not, and save the, the 20, 30, 40, 50 years of breeding. So you know, that's sort of an explanation on CRISPR, and I know that's a little long-winded. I guess where that's different than last maybe the last generation technologies, traditional GMO ones, is GMO, you were bringing in a foreign gene and you were layering over the top. You are just, just inserting oh, a foreign yeah. gene. And now what we're doing is changing the DNA, and it's usually something that's almost always found in nature in some other way. Right. So, so it's a lot of switching what is existing on and off and and changing what's existing rather than introducing something that's from some from some other uh, biological system exactly yep right so so are there food plants already available on the market that have used crispr and and if so what are they so the so crispr is the latest of a number of gene editing technologies this, this ability to change genes that we just discussed and um, and, the, and CRISPR is the most common. It's the easiest to use. There was an earlier technology called Talons. Um, it was invented somewhat earlier. And there's an oil on the market, uh, a high oleic soybean oil that was made with Talons. But uh -huh. but there are no CRISPR products yet. We'll, Pairwise will probably be the first. And we're working on a, a new salad and a, a seedless blackberry. So those will be some of the first. And those come out in a couple of years. Those will be some of the first uh, CRISPR um, edited products on the market. Uh, seedless blackberry. You need to tell me more. I'm a big blackberry fan, but I really hate the seeds. Tell me more. Well, that's perfect. You're, you know, you're unfor <laughs> unfortunately, you're not unique. We've done, we've done the studies. 85% of the consumers that buy blackberries don't like the seeds. There's a few that do. And, and there's a bunch of people that don't eat them that if they would. And so, um, you know, we, we looked at seedless grapes and seedless watermelons. And again, those are examples of mm. natural mutations that have gotten rid of the seeds. And we said like, consumers don't like seeds. And so we're bringing that uh, that same mutation over to blackberries to create a, a seedless blackberry or a variation of that mutation. So I think the the, the the one of the concerns that we we would all have with you know removing seeds from a from a crop is how do you then grow that crop when there's no seeds? Yeah. All right. So <laughs> so things like <laughs> corn and soy are grown from seeds. Most trees and berries are actually grown from. Um, uh, clones are actually cuttings and, and then they regrow into the whole plant. Now, um, I think a variation of your question you might well address is, well, how do you breed yes. <laughs> like plant breeding if you don't have seeds? And so it turns out that this particular mutation 
does cause um, an, an, an abortion of the seed. But right before that happens, the seed is viable. And so you can actually rescue it and still breed. And that's how, oh. you know, we've taken one mutation that happened in, in grapes. And now we have different colors of seedless grapes. And so, um, but if you notice, even though they're green and brown and, and purple and black, they're still all kind of taste the same. Mm. And that's because, uh, you know, when you're trying to retain that seedless quality through traditional breeding, you're losing a lot of the other unique flavors. And so that, that'd be one example of, of CRISPR that we could bring the set straight across, but retain a lot of the other advantages that would exist in the, the, the other varieties. Right. So it, we've already touched upon the fact that, you know, the earlier GMO crops used a completely different technology and, and, pretty much most of them were grower-based benefits. And really, you know, the, the only benefit they really had for consumers were more secondary benefits, such as reduced costs and maybe better availability. Uh, it would seem like the pairwise approach is virtually all focused on delivering more near-in or tangible consumer benefits. Can I ask you to tell us about the pairwise approach and why you've taken that path rather than any other path? Sure. To step back, anytime you have a new technology, you know you you have the technologists that are looking for a problem to solve, and mm. and and um, and and often you know they sort of get it. Um, it, it that problem needs to be something the public understands to be a problem. And, and so we, another way of saying that is you want a social good. And, you know, one of the social goods of electric vehicles is, is low, no pollution. And we all relate to that. And so one of the, one of the, the, the social goods that we want, we're focused on as a company and our mission is, is that we only eat half, all of America only eats about half the fruits and vegetables we should. I mean, they're widely available. There are yeah. some accessibilities but they're, but they're for a variety of reasons. And, and we've, this has been a problem for 40 years. <laughs> I mean, we've had mm -hmm. lots and lots of government education programs and, and yet we, we don't seem to be making a lot of progress. And so our thesis is, is the, is the quality and consistency just isn't there. Um, that, you know, it's not, you, you can have, you can buy a piece of fruit one day and it won't be good the next, or the shelf life's so short by the time you put it in the fridge, it's gone bad before you can eat it. So we think there are lots of problems that can be solved with CRISPR technologies that can enable us to eat more more fruits and vegetables. And so that's where our that's where our focus is. Now, full disclosure, we we do work with Bayer on the row crops, but but that'll take years and years and years to bring to market. The we're, the the first things that come to market will be crops for consumers with consumer benefits. Right, and I think you're a little generous with your, um, you know, fifty percent of, of consumers don't eat enough fruit, fruit and vegetables. I've certainly seen data that would suggest it's significantly lower than that. <laughs> well, so well, I, let me say it. So actually, um, I so the USDA data is is actually only only around nine percent of Americans eat what they're supposed to, right. but all of us eat about half. So on average, we only eat half of what we're supposed to. So it depends on whether you, but but to the point you raised, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and I guess that also leads back into your technology because their um, statistics on half relate to how much we're buying. And, and I can assure you that in my fridge, not everything that gets bought gets eaten. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's, a, that's a fair point too. But I, hopefully you're aligned with that general trend. And, mm. and, you know, this is interesting from a food science perspective that, you know, when I, I came out of the potato space um, and before I went into berries and, 
you know, there was a 30 point plus hedonic scale for measuring how good a potato chip or French fry was, but no one had ever done that worked on a baked potato, you know, especially with no butter. And so there wasn't any sensory, there wasn't an industry standard of what was good. It was just, you know, what people, what the marketers wanted to pitch. And so I think you've seen all the science go into the, the process side of things and you, and you haven't seen much of that developed in fresh fruits and vegetables. And, and we think CRISPR is finally the tool to do that, to make, to make these products both taste better, last longer and, and be more available. Yeah, I mean, it, it, you raise an interesting point where you know not a lot of science was done on on a baked potato in terms of the sensory acceptance and what have you. And it dawns on me that part of the reason why there was a, a, a distinct strong focus on um, on crop benefits that benefited the farmers and yield was because that's where the money was. And there was way less availability of return on investment if you invested in things like improved flavor. Um, and that starts to question the, your business model. How does your, you, you see your business model playing out when the return on investment might be lower for the sorts of things that you're working on, like an improved flavor of baked potato, is is that going to generate as much income for you and profit for you as an improved yield for a potato? Yeah, so that, good. I mean, good point. So what, one of the things to think about on the, on the GMO side is they had relatively few traits. Right. So you had insect resistance and herbicide resistance, which is, you know, has, of course, been heavily criticized. But the, and so that the business model was also tied to, if you have, a few traits that work really, really well, how do you deploy them on the most acres possible? Mm-hmm. And so it was getting the farmer to pay more from a seed perspective. Yeah. Now, uh, if you, and so, you know, there's a hundred million acres of corn, but there's 50 million acres, 50,000 acres of strawberry. So if you're only thinking about yield, yeah, it's, that's a much bigger, a much bigger pie to go after the grain. However, if you look downstream at, at what consumers buy and pay for, if you can create something that the consumers value and you can move from that step beyond the farm to consumers, there can be quite a bit of value there. And I guess I'd go back to that seedless watermelon example. They, they cost 50% more than a seeded watermelon, but none of us, we all pay that. We don't even think about it. Absolutely. So you ha- so the economics can be quite good, but you yeah. have to move that next level and create something that consumer values. Right. But I guess that probably takes us to communication and how you communicate that. And you could argue that one of the key things that the early plant crop genetic engineers could have done better is the whole area of consumer communication. Maybe even they might be criticized for the lack of transparency. Uh, What do you think we can learn from that? And as a result, how should we go about the process of bringing consumers along on this journey of edible plant improvement? Well, that's... um yeah, I th- your point on transparency is absolutely correct. We we've got to be completely transparent. I think I think you also have to have a reason for the technology. Mm. So that, and that's part of our mission. Uh, you know, more a, a better world through better fruits and vegetables. And I think that's something most people can alignment with. They relate to the problems, um, the problem we're solving. You know, it turns out that on the on the the, the row crop side, I mean. Those messages about feeding the world or about climate change, um, you know, those are important messages, but people don't relate to them on an individual level. You know, we don't. But I think we can all relate to um, either our kids or our grandkids or our nieces and nephews 
struggling to eat enough fruits and vegetables. I mean, I watch it in my kids where they, they go to school and they pack their own lunches and they look at the snacks and there's seven or eight kinds of crackers or cookies that they can grab. And there's, mm. there, there's very few fruit, fruits and vegetables that will survive the trip in the lunchbox to be still be good at lunchtime. So, um, you know, getting at these sort of fundamental problems that we can relate to and getting the products right. We think that that with transparency is, is one of the, um, one of the keys to bringing consumers along. So as I understand it, the CRISPR technology can also be used for other purposes, such as repairing faulty genes or turning the expression of certain genes on or off. What can you tell us about what's being done in that area and, and what significant opportunities do you see for the future? That, that's right. The first, you know, how, how CRISPR occurs naturally is it's used to cut out viral DNA and bacteria. But what we really want to do in both humans and plants is actually slightly change sequences that approximate the mutations that happen naturally. And that can be, right. you know, adding a, a gene that's present, or that could be just, just changing one base pair. And so um, most of the, the I mean, the, for the, like the things that we're doing with um, some of our seedless, those are very, very small genetic changes, just a base pair or two. And, you know, changing from a G to a T or an A to a C. And, um, and those are the, the sorts of tools. Now, you know, we're down in the weeds because at the end of the day, the, the question is, is did, did you produce something that, um, that's really meaningful? Um, now, maybe this is a, a good time to bring up is what is the source of these innovations, Bruce? Where, you know, where, where do you get the ideas from? And, yeah, and, good, good question. And if, if I'm, I, I'm really delighted that you're interviewing yourself now. I'll sit back. <laughs> well, all right. Yeah, no worries. So I think that because one thing with your question, it's assumed that, you know, we're just making these cha changes of DNA. And that's actually not what we're doing, and at least at ra randomly. So take blackberries, which you like. Mm -hmm. Blackberries and raspberries are in, the, are in the family of rubus. There's 800 different kinds of plants there. Wow. And we sequenced all of those genomes and we grew 120 of these wild ones and we measured them with, uh, with cameras over two years to try to understand what are all the changes? What has nature done? And that's where we're getting the source, uh, our, our ideas for innovation based on what's already out there in these other species. So again, we can, we can make the sorts of changes, but we're really borrowing from what nature's already invented. Right. So that raises the question in my mind about biodiversity. And as we improve the characteristics of various plants, do you think there's a potential risk that as we improve those, that they're the ones that everyone's going to want to buy and therefore they're the ones that everyone's going to want to grow and therefore we start to compromise the, the diversity of crops that are grown and are available to us? You know, if you compare, for example, to 100 years ago, uh, the spread of variety of edible plants that uh, has dramatically declined. And in some varieties, we've lost completely altogether. Uh, what's your view on where we're headed on all this level of improvement and what it's going to do to um, edible biodiversity going forward? And, and, and how does CRISPR help us with that? I, I actually think that CRISPR will help. I don't know if completely get us back to 100 years ago, but CRISPR will help us correct the balance. And there's a, a couple of reasons. I just mentioned Rubus and these and all these 100, 800 wild varieties. Well, one of the ones that 
is black raspberries. Black raspberries are made in jams, but they're not grown in the fresh market, the, mm. at least in the U.S., because the shelf life's not long enough to ship. You can have them in your backyard, or maybe you can catch them in a farmer's market in a couple locations, but they only last a couple of days. And so this is an example where you could use CRISPR technology to bring the shelf life to black raspberry and bring this whole new berry to market. And that's one of the... And so I, we actually think that CRISPR will kind of level the playing field and bring bring more of these other edible plants to the market. Um, so I think that that's um, and that's one aspect of it. And the reason why is it was so expensive to develop these breeding programs and these and, and especially these biotech programs. And CRISPR is so easy and so usable that we can apply it to a variety of crops. That that's one aspect of it. I, th I think that you know the row crop aspect of it's also interesting that. You know, if you were, if you go talk to farmers in Iowa, you know, they, they're mostly growing corn and soy and they would love other crops that be com competitive economically, mm. but the, the other ones can't, you know, other can't compete. And so I see CRISPR as, you know, potentially helping sorghum and millet and wheat um, catch up as it were with more advantages to be econ economically viable. So I, I, I hope it goes the other way um, on, on bringing more edible plants to market. That's certainly where we're focused. I mean, I could use this opportunity to tell you about how we're using it in our salad products if you're interested um, to try to bring bring new Yeah, plants. please do. I'm, I'm, I'm super interested in, I mean, in looking at uh, certainly my kids, uh, getting them to eat lots of salad is uh, somewhat of a challenge apart from the vegetarian daughter I have, but, but the rest of them, they, they, they would rather not eat salad if they could avoid it. So please tell me more about salad. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, all right. Well, first of all, I'll sympathize. It's a, I, we struggle the same way, which is that we know we should eat kale or maybe spinach, but my kids want to eat Caesar salad and romaine or maybe iceberg. Mm. So they want that sweet crunch and they don't want the nutritional, um, the nutritional greens. And it turns out that, you know, our families aren't different than anybody else's families that two thirds of what we eat is iceberg and romaine, which is, doesn't near have the nutrition of even spinach and spinach is still, you know, a shadow of kale. So, you know, the kale is a, a very small percentage, even though that's what we should be eating. So the reason kale is so healthy is it's a brassica. Right. So it's in the same family as broccoli. Mm -hmm. That's probably also why it's so darn tough. It turns out that there are lots of other brassica leaves, hundreds in fact, but they almost all taste like horseradish. Yep. They're very hot and spicy. So mustard's one of them. And so one of the things we're doing, but it, one of, I should mention this before I, before I pitch the technology, is that if you could just chew these and not taste horseradish, a lot of them have the sensory of like a romaine or a butterleaf lettuce. So somehow you have to stop that enzymic reaction generating the allylisothiocyanate, right? So how do you do that? So we've uh, well. So you're very educated. We're using CRISPR technology to to rem to knock out that enzyme, and it's oh. it's multiple copies to get rid of the pungency and to bring these brassicas to market as as new healthy salad uh, salad options. Wow! And I had no appreciation for that underneath that bitter um, uh, astringent flavor that you got from uh, from a brassica. There was a sweet um, flavor sitting underneath that. It, it had no impression of that at all. Yeah, when, yeah no, and, and we wouldn't. But um, 
But now some of them taste like grass and some of them have other flavors too. So there's quite a variety underneath that, but you had to get past past the pungency first. And so, yeah, that's, you've got it knocking out isocyanates. Yep. Yeah. And and the the other interesting thing about things like kale is that the level of toughness is also somewhat alienating to uh to for young palates as well. I've I've found that in in my work as well. Are you seeing a similar sort of thing that you can maybe even make them a little uh, more tender? So, so Bruce the it, it's interesting to bring that up. So kale being tough is part of the you know part of that species, right? but it was bred to be non-pungent or naturally was non-pungent and we selected kale and same with broccoli. A lot of these other brassica leaves are already supple or crunchy and, and very palatable. They're just pungent. And so and, and, and instead of changing kale to be, to, be, um, to be supple, we're going to change the pungent species that are already supple to be, that are very much like the lettuces to, 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 be, to be mild tasting. Hmm. Interesting. So what does the regulatory framework look for the use of CRISPR? Are there any regulatory hurdles that you're going to need to jump over or alternatively, do you feel that maybe some more need to be put in place? Well, most, most of North and South America and Australia and Japan have taken this approach where if, if, if a product, if the, if the end product is like what could have happened with conventional breeding, then they're going to regulate it very close to conventional breeding. So the you can't have any foreign DNA left, and the changes you made, you know, it could could have occurred naturally, or maybe did, and you and you brought them over. So the so that's sort of the regulatory framework. Now Europe's still a little bit different, but they're reevaluating that. And so you know, in the nuts and bolts of the process, you you go with you go to the USDA and you show them the edits you've made. And, uh, and, 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 and the arguments of how, how it's already found in nature. And, um, and then you verify that there's no um, foreign DNA and, and, and you can move forward like you, like you have with a conventional variety. You know, I would say that, you know, there's a fair amount of selection that goes in, even with conventional breeding. And, and the regulatory authorities have vast post-market, you know, regulatory authority to, 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 to keep monitoring. But this is very, very similar to what's done with conventional breeding. Right. So we've talked a lot today about the benefits of CRISPR, and and I would hate to leave this conversation thinking it's kind of all one-sided. So can I ask you to just reflect what you think the downsides might be uh, or the challenges that we should be thinking about as we look more to CRISPR as, as solving some of these more fundamental problems? Yeah, um, there's that's probably two two areas to touch on there. One is it's still in, very expensive and, and relatively long timelines. You know, by the time you've done your science, you've bulk seed and, and you've done a field trial, most crops um, could be ten years. Um, we've got some that are five, but so it's not a short term process. Uh, right. And so the I think and it's still expensive. Um, now we we think it'll get cheaper over time, but um, that certainly the cost and the and the um, the timelines are, are are a barrier. Mm-hmm. One other aspect uh, it's probably worth touching on just because it would it would come up is um, something called off target effects. It's more about you know the development for human medicines, but it's, it's worth touching on just to be comprehensive. So if you're de- fixing a genetic disease in humans. One of the worries that the regulatory authorities have is that, so you, f- you fix the gene that was faulty, but 
what if you accidentally damaged two more that weren't <laughs> at the same time? And so that would be what we call an off-target effect. And, and so you have to be very, very precise and have very high fidelity for human medicine. And that's one of the challenges, that, and there's quite a bit of innovation going on there. On the plant side, it's a little bit different. So, you know, when, when reprodu plant reproduction happens, or plant, we call it plant sex, I guess, there's, a, there's 150 natural mutations on average per cycle. So, you know, mutation is a normal part of the bio, biological process. Now, so the CRISPR has much, much higher fidelity than natural processes, but you need to do this selection to make sure you don't have any off types. Right. So I think that that's something that, that needs to happen as part of the process. And it's, you know, that's something that's done with conventional breeding because it certainly happens all the time naturally as well. And, and, and probably a, a significant contributor to the long time, lead times the, to develop these things. Well, it's why you have to have... Not, not so much because you need a couple of years of field testing. Right. The longer timelines are a couple, at least a couple of years in the lab with science. And often bulking seed can take a long time. So, you know, you're starting with a single plant with an edit and you've, you've got to get enough seed after multiple generations to, um, to, plant, to plant some field trials. And so that, that fair amount of the time is um, in that process. So, so this all sounds incredibly exciting and, and it, you know, you've really, uh, it, it got me really super engaged. But, but as we finish up here today, what is it you'd want uh, food scientists to know about working in this segment? You, you know, if you're excited about, about what you've heard, how do you get in and what does it look like once you're in? <laughs> well, yeah. Uh... <laughs> Couple of, couple of different directions to go with that. One, one we've been trying, we've been trying to hire, and it's actually been quite difficult. A couple, I sorry, we've been trying to hire a couple of food scientists. We just hired two, and uh, we'll open a couple more positions. But you know, in general, um, you know, this is a brand new field, I, and I'm speaking especially about fruits and vegetables and and the CRISPR, and, and actually uh, working on on a better consumer experience. And what we find is that you know. In the processed food industry, people can have very good experiences, but very, very deep. And then we transition over and, and we're going from, from gene to consumer product and all these other science processes in between. And so we need people that um, can do the food science, but can also appreciate the whole process and actually steer, mm. steer the scientists towards better consumer products. So the cultural aspect of doing something that matters for consumers, I think is something that food scientists do well at and, and we could really use in, um, in, in our other life sciences area. Well, well, that's certainly, uh, you've just run yourself a nice uh, advertisement for food scientists. So uh, <laughs> anybody that's listening to this wants to get in touch with Hayden, uh, look at the uh, show notes and I can sure you can find um, a connection to him. So, look, I've super enjoyed this today. Uh, you know, I've learned a hell of a lot and I, I really thank you for all your time and your insights today, Haven. Um, and um, really uh, enjoyed hearing about all the amazing science you've been involved in and uh, your plans going forward. So thank you very much. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. Thank you also to our listeners. If you're enjoying Side Dish, please let us know by leaving a review wherever you source your podcasts or by connecting with IFT. You can find us on Twitter using the handle at IFT and by searching the Institute of Food Technologists on Facebook and or LinkedIn. For more on this subject, be sure to visit our website at ift.org and type in the subject that you're interested in the search box to gain a ton of access to extra resources. Thank you for listening to Side Dish. I'm your host, Bruce Perkin. Have a great day, everyone.